Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, uh, High Truth listeners. It is lovely to join you today, and I hope you fancy the smashing conversation you're about to hear from across the pond. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Love, and you may be miffed by my cooked-up British accent. I am preparing for a conversation with one of the most important cannabis and schizophrenia researchers in the world. Um, I hope I do a better job than my British accent, but it may benefit a review of the basics. What is cannabis use disorder? What is psychosis and what is schizophrenia? Cannabis use disorder is a diagnosis from the DSM-5 Manual of Mental Disorders. It follows the exact criteria for alcohol use disorder, opiate use disorder, methamphetamine use disorder, or any substance use disorder. There are 11 criteria ranging from taking substances in larger amount or longer than you meant to, wanting to cut down, and continuing to use again and again even when it puts you in danger. Two or three of these 11 symptoms means a mild use disorder, and six or more indicates a severe use disorder. Psychosis is a disruption of a person's thought and perceptions that make it difficult for a person to recognize what is real and what isn't. The disruptions can be seeing or hearing or believing things that aren't real or having strange persistent thoughts. Hallucinations can be benign, such as whispers or voices that cannot be understood, they can make a person feel bad about themselves. You're stupid. You should die. Some people feel like they're being chased and are scared. And sometimes the voices are commanding or violent. Kill yourself. Pick up that knife. It is a miserable human condition. Psychosis is a symptom, not a disease in itself. It's like having chest pain. Schizophrenia is a diagnosis, a mental health diagnosis, that includes the symptom of psychosis. It's comparable to the diagnosis of a heart attack, the disease, compared to the symptom of chest pain. Schizoaffective disorder is a combination of symptoms of schizophrenia 
and mood disorders such as depression or bipolar. One cannot diagnose schizoaffective or schizophrenia without eliminating the cause of drugs or medication that can be responsible for the symptoms. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Alexis, and thank you so much for your podcast and for being an advocate for parents such as myself. My husband and I have a son who has cannabis use disorder and also diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Is there a way to find out if cannabis caused his psychosis or if he would have had psychosis and mental health issues regardless of marijuana? By the way, he is 18, although still in high school and 100% dependent. It has been very difficult to advocate for him and get him services he needs. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alexis. And I am so very sorry for the anguish you and your entire family are going through. I appreciate your question. And to discuss your situation, I invited a world-renowned researcher and psychiatrist, Dr. Marta DeForti. Dr. Marta DeForti is a psychiatrist and clinical researcher from the UK. Clinically, she leads the first cannabis clinic for patients with psychotic disorders in the UK. Her research has shown for the first time that high-potent cannabis carries a higher risk of psychosis and that it affects rates of psychotic disorders throughout Europe. Her current research evaluates the interaction between cannabis use and genes predisposing to schizophrenia and how cannabis changes that epigenome. She was awarded the Royal College of Psychiatrists Researcher of the Year Prize. You can find Dr. Marta DeForte's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Marta DeForte, welcome to High Truth. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I, I, I am so excited for this conversation. We all met your husband, Professor Sir Robin Murray. Um, and so we got this husband-wife team. And I can just ask you, what's it like in the Murray DeForte household? Do you talk statistics and research? Um, or do you ever say, honey, can you please take out the rubbish? Oh, we definitely do that. Actually, you'd be pleased to know that it's uh, Robbie Murray duty to look after the rubbish, no mine. Uh, and we, we have a dog and three cats. You can see one of them behind us. So there is lots of talk about our pets. Uh, you, you know, we have grandchildren. So we talk about grandchildren. And and But of course, there is lots about uh, cannabis and, and psychosis in our daily life and normal conversation as well. And I'm, I mean, I know, of course, you look so much younger than that husband, as women uh, do. But you do learn a lot from him. Has he been doing it longer, or even, uh, or vice versa? How does that work? Yes. Well, if you if you want to know this side of the story, I'm don't just look younger than Robin. I actually am much younger than you <laughs> than Robin. And I first met Robin at a course where we young psychiatrists go to prepare for our exams. Uh, now a very long time ago in fact we're talking about 1998 and he gave this just wonderful mind-blowing lecture and I said to my friend who was sitting next to me I said I absolutely love this man this is the one I want to marry and she said oh well forget about it and then I did my exams I got my membership as we say in UK of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and at the end of the lecture Robin said well if any of you want to do research once you've done your exam come and see me so that's what I did. I went to see him in 2003 after I've done all I needed to do after the exam, knock his door, and we started doing research together. And I guess the rest is uh, 
is history. And so then I invited my friend to our wedding and said, you see, I told you this was going to happen one day. You knew that love at first sight. Uh, Indeed, uh, it was love at first sight. Amazing. It's beautiful. Um, I, I want to also ask you, when um, at the beginning of the show, I, I'm, I showed our High Truth listeners my very bad British accent. Um, and and your your british culture shows up in emails very polite and and proper what what is your perception of americans like we're we're much less formal and i just say you know your research is very cool is that does that come off as being less polite or or, or proper well you have to think that i guess my email uh, well, I think your email are wonderful and very polite and 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 full of uh, uh, of uh, of energy. Uh, I'm not necessarily as contained and subtle as British one, and I absolutely love the American style. And I guess you can tell from my accent, not just my name, that I'm actually Italian. Uh, so my email are a combination of both. I certainly know. I mean, Robin would be horrified that you think I, I write in a British fashion because he wouldn't agree. He wouldn't agree with that. And in fact, if you compare his email style with mine, probably you will pick up a difference. I, I guess I don't know. The politeness perhaps is more an Italian. Italian when they write in the formal work context, they are. Um, sort of uh, polite in a formal way rather than necessarily in an affectionate way. British are quite brief, uh, you know, are more to to the point. And I, I had to embrace a bit of both. I had to learn to be brief, but I still maintain my slightly Italian style. Well, I, I started to kind of cuff, copy you. It's like, have a lovely weekend. <laughs> well, this, this is, oh, this I'll is see, actually I'll me. see you soon, dear. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, darling. Well, we haven't got into the darling bit yet. So uh, I have a, a high truth question for you from one of our listeners. Alexis has is really suffering um, in crisis because she has an 18-year-old who's diagnosed as having a cannabis use disorder and schizoaffective disorder. And she asks, first of all, I, I want to ask you, can, can a 19-year-old have uh, this dual diagnosis uh, uh, if they're using it at the same time? Because I thought you cannot label someone as having schizoaffective disorder until you exclude drug use. Well, I think, Alexis, this is a very important point. And this is something I uh, battle with the system where I work in and sometimes my colleagues too. I personally think that if your son is still using cannabis, and in fact, he sounds like he's using it heavily, and he's experiencing in the context of his cannabis use symptoms that resemble what we might call schizophrenia, and also uh, there is a mood component, so his mood might go up or he might be very low, it would be pretty much impossible and actually think almost unethical to give him a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Unless when you look at the history uh, of the development of the symptoms which have been described as schizoaffective, they came before the cannabis use. So in that case, you might say that he has both because the schizoaffective component was there before and then later on he started using cannabis and also he developed dependence on cannabis. This sometimes can happen. I would be very surprised because Alexis' son is very young, but this can happen. In, and some of the people I see that will tell me that the psychosis came first and then they turn into cannabis in the attempt to alleviate some of the symptoms 
and then what happened that actually made the symptoms worse. Uh, but I, so it would be interesting for me to know the chronology, what came first. But if cannabis came first, I think it would be very unfair to give him a diagnosis uh, as specific as schizoaffective. That's a very important point that you you make. And I, I always thought that, but the fact that you just said that gives me like power now to to, to tell us. But you know, like, I... I argue sometimes with my with my colleagues, and I because I, I refuse to give. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, I'm quite privileged because I work in a service that we call early intervention. So when we see young people who develop a psychotic disorder, whatever they might be, for the first time, and we are very very reluctant to give label until we get to know somebody very well. Sometimes. Two years down the line, we don't give a diagnosis. And I guess we can afford it because in the NHS, we can provide care without depending on insurances and uh, and a system where you need to formulate a diagnosis quite early. So I, I feel very strongly about what Alexis is raising. Wow. I never thought of that, and I should have. But maybe the psychiatrists are putting that label so they could get reimbursement. That could be. Sometimes we do that in the United States because um, it's like, okay, we're not going to get paid for cannabis-induced psychosis, so we maybe we'll get paid for schizoaffective sort. I don't know. but Yeah, or Ronnie, sometimes access of care. Some, I mean, I don't know how it is in the States, but sometimes if you do have a certain diagnosis, you can access more care um, than uh, if you only have. So, for instance, in UK, um, if you only have a diagnosis which falls under the umbrella of addiction, so in this case, cannabis use disorder, you might not be able to access some community services or you might uh, you might not be able to get extra support if you need it. Um, so th- there might be a reason why, but I, I would actually ask, I would have an open conversation with a psychiatrist and said, why have you decided to, to give my son this diagnosis? Is there a reason uh, that maybe is giving him an advantage in the care he's receiving or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and then, and you mentioned two years, but how long do you have to be off drugs before you really determine that a psychotic symptoms are from schizophrenia, uh, a chronic condition rather than drugs? So with the two years, I mentioned two years because this is the, the timeline where we offer care for psychosis. So this is independent of uh, of cannabis use or any other uh, risk component for psychosis. In terms of my experience that we have in a parallel service that I'm involved in, which is called the Cannabis Clinic, where we provide support to young people who have a psychotic disorder and use heavily cannabis to reduce the cannabis use or even stop, what we see is that once they have significantly managed to reduce their use, and I'm saying, for instance, moving from using daily to maybe once or twice a week, or even better, stop completely, you can see a significant reduction, clinically significant reduction from 20 to 50% of the psychotic symptoms within four to five months. And sometimes even you see an improvement even within the first month of abstinence from cannabis or significant reduction. So the improvement is quite remarkable. And some of these young people will tell me that even if I actually cannot measure it when I apply one of the standardized interview uh, to, to see changes in their psychosis, they will tell me that subjectively they begin to feel better sometimes even within a week of uh, uh, of reducing or stopping the cannabis use. Yeah, so that's that's very that's important. The the other question that Alexis had, which you kind of answered, is 
you know, I think a lot of parents have this question is whether her son's cannabis use caused his schizoaffective disorder, um, which we're questioning, or whether he would have developed psychosis in any case. This is a wonderful question, and I wish I could share with you a graph that I have, but maybe I can send it to you, Ronit, yeah, and maybe you me. can yeah. share it with Alexis, because what we find is um, certainly cannabis use, it cannot be considered the sole cause of uh, a psychotic disorder, because psychotic disorder, broadly speaking, are a multifactorial condition. So normally you put together a variety of risk factors that then um, in, increase to a point the risk of somebody of developing the condition that they, they go over the threshold. Um, so cannabis certainly is for the majority of people who come to psychosis when they're using cannabis, what pushes them over the threshold. So it's not a solo cause, but it's the one that we have demonstrated in London um, and across Europe and even more so in, uh, in Amsterdam, that for 50% of people, when you remove the cannabis component, even if they had other risk factors of psychosis, including family history, or they might have experienced obstetric complication, or they had history of trauma, if you have removed for 50% of them cannabis, you could have prevented the transition to the clinical condition. So the point is that we cannot reverse things that happen in early life. We cannot have all of us living in perfect social context and in the right socioeconomic status. Certainly, we cannot change the DNA we have in our family history, but cannabis use, it's the only thing we can change. And we do know that for a significant proportion of people, if you remove from the equation cannabis use, you could have prevented the condition. Now, some people, and there are lots of genetic studies now, they looked at the genetic overlap between the genetic of schizophrenia and the genetic of cannabis use disorder. And they've seen that these two genetics overlap. And so they have concluded that the people who develop a psychotic disorder because they use cannabis, they, they do that because they have already lots of schizophrenia genes and they were doomed to develop schizophrenia with or without cannabis. Now, there is actually no evidence of that yet. What we do know is that perhaps when you look down at the genetic, there are elements of the biology that are involved in why young, some young people choose cannabis as their drug of choice rather than another one, and then why this increases the probability to develop a psychotic disorder rather than another mental condition. So this genetic overlap is really a starting point to understand what these two, be, you know, one behavior and one psychiatric condition have in common, but they don't tell us the story. So you can have also a very high family history of, uh, of schizophrenia and not necessarily develop schizophrenia, but certainly if you add cannabis on top of it, that's not a good news. I don't right. know if that helps. I, I think so. And I think your husband, Sir um, Sir Robin Marie, said it, it's adding another risk factor, right? So if yeah. you have a genetic disposition to develop a heart attack, you know, um, add to that smoking, and now you've got a, now you have a more serious situation. And, and this is a, a very good example that Robin always gives. And, you know, there are people who have a very strong family history of heart attack, and certainly they are at a higher risk of the, the rest of the population, but they don't acquire a 100% risk of developing an heart attack. And if they modify their environment so they keep healthy, they keep uh, their weight under control, they don't smoke, they exercise, even the genetic load 
can be kept under control. And it's a bit the same. So even if you have a strong family history, but you keep your environment as clean as possible, which certainly means no cannabis, you might prevent altogether the transition to develop the clinical condition. Right. And then another question that uh, Alexis probably has, and maybe more difficult so, um, to clearly answer, but you know, at, at, at 18 years old, if her son stops using cannabis, um, does he have a good chance of, and uh, with heavy use, does he have um, a chance of recovering? I guess it would be difficult for me to give a 100% yes or no, no having had the pleasure of meeting Alexis' son. But what I can say is that research tells us that if you have a psychotic disorder, call it schizoaffective, whatever we want to call it, schizophrenia or psychotic disorder in general, and you use cannabis and then you stop it, your chances to recover fully or certainly to get to a level of improvement where you can go back to education, you can get a job, you can function pretty well as a young adult. It's much higher than if you continue to use cannabis, but sometimes also of young people who have developed a psychotic disorder without cannabis use, where perhaps the genetic component was the strongest of all risk factors. So certainly try to use, to stop using cannabis. It's worthwhile because it can significantly change how well Alexis' son is going to do in his, in his life and his, his chances of recovery. Right. And then to use, you know, your husband's analogy, if you already have a heart attack and you already have two stents, if you stop smoking, it'll prevent you from having more stents. You know, it won't reverse the damage that you have, but, but right? Yeah, it prevents having another one. And also we do know these days that people who have had an heart attack, if again, they modify their environment, you know, not only they can have a pretty healthy life, but sometimes they're encouraged even to do things like exercise and be more active than they were before the, the heart attack. And it's exactly the same. You know, our mind is extremely plastic. You know, now we know that our brain is an extraordinary ability to uh, overcome, you know, brain injury, but also stressful and uh, uh, and and illness uh, condition if you give it a chance to to be stimulated positively to take out of the equation things like uh, drug abuse so everything that you can do to have a positive and reaching stimulating healthy lifestyle for a young person of 18 will give a chance to his brain and mind to thrive even if right now is not in a happy place that's important. And I want to continue with the, the smoking analogy. Um, with schizophrenia, tobacco, nicotine actually decreases the negative effects of the, the voices and delusions. There, there, there is a positive effect from smoking. That's why uh, uh, we find a lot of people with mental health issues are, are attracted to smoking because it does calm them. On the other hand, I can imagine when you were saying, okay, somebody who had psychotic symptoms and then they started smoking, but the true is not, that's true for nicotine. It's not true for cannabis. Cannabis, does cannabis relax those uh, psychotic symptoms like, like nicotine does? So what the people, and I think usually the best things is actually to ask 
uh, young people if they do get any benefit, because there is not a huge amount of literature where this data have been collected systematically. I mean, we do know in from the studies that using cannabis has a negative impact on symptoms. So we know the objective side of the story. But if you ask them, or if you, I ask my patients, they will tell me that he does allow them to detach from the symptoms. So they are less bothered about it. So they still think, for instance, that the neighbor are against them and that the neighbor are controlling what they're saying and they've put a microchip in the radiator or in the, uh, underneath the fridge. But they don't bother about it. So they they so it doesn't change the contents of some of their belief, but makes them sort of more detached from them. So they can cope with the distress associated with hearing voices, for instance. They still hear the voices, but they don't get scared or upset about them. So they do find that acutely they get a benefit. The problem is that. Uh, what happens to the symptoms is the symptoms become more intense and more frequent. And then what they have to do is that they have to increase their use even to have this very brief relief from the distress associated with the symptoms. Well, that's interesting. So they, they do, they may have some type of, uh, of benefit, at least not caring about the voices. Right. But, you know, if you think about people that have an experience of any substance misuse, they will tell you that they do get some pleasure out of it. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't use it. I mean, if you ask somebody who has alcohol dependence, uh, they might tell you that, well, you know, when they are in a bar, the reason why they drink a lot is because it makes them feel more relaxed in a social context and more extrovert. And uh, so, some people who drink lots of alcohol will tell you that al alcohol reduces their anxiety. Now, we know that one thing that is not good for anxiety and mood is alcohol. But what we do know is that if you start drinking a lot uh, and then you, you need to maintain a high level of consumption because otherwise you get withdrawal and it's the withdrawal that makes you anxious. And then by drinking, you release the anxiety, which is a withdrawal symptom. So I think whenever you ask people who use a lot of a drug, nicotine, cannabis, alcohol, amphetamine, they will tell you that there is something good that they get out of it, or they would have not done it in the first place. Even if then from the outside, you realize that the price you pay is much higher than any pleasure you might got at the very beginning. And, and you know, and, and that's the part that I see in the emergency department, you know, that people will say, you know, I'm drinking to relax or I use, you know, marijuana uh, to, to just to help me sleep. Uh, but then they're in the emergency department with raging psychosis. They need to be admitted to the behavioral health unit or extremely drunk and passed out or 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 in a in a in a horrible situation that brought them to the emergency department. So there's. There's that disconnect, like you did it to yes. feel good, but you're here in the emergency department feeling miserable. Totally. And some of the interesting stories that I hear from uh, uh, young people I, I meeting in the context of the cannabis clinic is that they will tell me, well, he has taken me being admitted to hospital four times until I clearly saw the link between the impact that cannabis use was having on my mental health and the fact that it was the cannabis use that was causing me to be so unwell that I needed to be in hospital. Uh, so it's to us, it's obvious 
but to them, because there is this mixed picture and mixed experience where they do get some pleasure still, uh, and then they end in hospital, sometimes it takes, sadly, several bad experiences to, to develop insight. So tell us about your, your clinic. You have a, a, a cannabis unit that you run, and you even invited me um, to, to come speak to your patients. Very excited. When I, when I told people about that, they said, oh, you get to go to London. And I said, no, no, no. I just, <laughs> just Zoom. <laughs> but this time, but you never know, right? Never know. Maybe next time you see right. a person. But what I was telling you is that um, in some way, even if you were able to come to London, probably you would be ending sitting with me in my home and still being on Zoom. Because um, one of the things that we have uh, um, developed, and this has been uh, perhaps the only or one of the very few good things happening during the pandemic, we've been able to expand this uh, experience of the peer group of the cannabis clinic, which is what you're going to be part of, um, to everybody in the big hospital um, where I work, which covers a huge catchment area of, of London, we are able to invite anybody who has a psychotic condition and they're using cannabis and they can be at home in the community, so receiving care, you know, while they are still at home, or they can actually be in the hospital as uh, inpatients. And all they need is a gadget, could be the mobile phone, or sometimes the nurses facilitate uh, their connection with the peer group. And so we have this very um, interesting, and I hope you will enjoy meeting them, group of young people at different stage of the psychosis, some very unwell, some much more stable, and some towards their recovery, who they all have in common using cannabis or having used cannabis. And we get usually a special guest like yourself to come and tell us uh, about what is your experience as a clinician uh, of cannabis and psychosis? And then you will see that, that there is a discussion that sparks where they will ask questions, they will tell uh, what their experience has been, they might disagree. Uh, they have this fantasy that in America, because in many places you have legalized it, it's all wonderful. Because it's legal, you can't get psychosis when you use cannabis. So they're really looking forward to meeting somebody from America that can tell them the truth about cannabis and psychosis. And it's great to give them a place where they feel in charge and they feedback I get is that it's been very important for them to have the opportunity to learn about cannabis and psychosis without somebody telling them what to do so that they can take the message away, think about it. I, I look forward um, um, to to doing that. I now now that talking to you, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give them real cases from the emergency department, just a few examples of patients that I personally have 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 treated, and I I get examples sadly every single day. Um, but what's it like having a group session on Zoom in in a hospital, and how do you interact in a in a? It's very unusual to do a group therapy for people with psychosis. And this is uh, this has been a sort of uh, a new um, experience for me too, because when we started with the idea of the peer group, which we borrow from general approaches in addiction, uh, we were a bit skeptical because normally people say, "Well, you can't do peer group with psychosis because uh, young people who have psychosis might be a bit paranoid, suspicious; they won't feel comfortable to interact." 
And uh, um, we actually found, compared to when initially we began and we were able to actually invite, of course, not the one that were inpatients, but the one in the community to a neutral venue. It was a local library. So we had a very sort of... Uh, um, differences in number of people turning up sometimes we would have four sometimes we would have eight a couple of times we had two and the one that came were fine but when we move on zoom for the pandemic we started having 20 30 all joining uh, on on zoom and i think what they find helpful is that they can have the camera off and they can interact by writing in the chat so depending where they are and how they feel, they can still be part of the group, they can still express their opinion, ask questions, comment in a way that they don't find intrusive if because of the psychosis they um, they need to feel protected behind a dark camera. And so Zoom has actually allowed them to be part of something that the community setting we had at the beginning was uh, um, what was sort of preventing many of them from joining because some of these young people I care for, they are too paranoid to take a public transport. They don't tolerate to be on a bus. They might find it very difficult to walk down the street. So this idea of coming to the library that to me was very easy for them was very challenging, but they can do this from their room. And again, they can do from hospital and you'll see the hospital one. I mean, last week we had somebody who was an inpatient in our, what we call psychiatric intensive care. And this young man was sitting in a small room next to his psychiatrist and a nurse. And, and you know, he, with his video on, commenting, giving his experience of cannabis. And it, it was just, it was totally clear, coherent, made absolute sense, very engaging. And I was thinking, wow, and we think this young man is mentally unwell. Uh, and he was unwell. I mean, there were lots of other things that were not not right, but he it was great, and he was great that he felt comfortable enough to do that. Right. Do you do you change their mind by 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 sharing this, or do? So the best way I could tell you that for some of them, this has been exactly the process changing their mind. Uh, would be to share with you a video that um, one of the young guy who has been part of the peer group for a year prepared just before we, we had a break for Christmas. He started off the peer group, coming to the peer group and saying, well, you know, whatever you say about cannabis, but I've been smoking for 10 years and it's part of my life and I think it's wonderful. And to a point that he came to a couple of the peer group with his joint on and the other peers had to tell him off. And he started sort of commenting and saying, well, you know, I had what such and such said about the effect of cannabis on my brain and I'm trying to get a little holiday. So there are a few times in the week where I tried to, to go without it. And then he started reducing more and more. And then he self-tested to see how things were changing for him. And he prepared this video where he gives his testimony of uh, how by coming to the peer group and learning things from different sort of uh, experts from all around the world who were talking about brain imaging and cannabis, about uh, memory and cannabis, about uh, THC and CBD and cannabis, about psychosis and cannabis, addiction and cannabis, whatever all the different things that we have in the peer group. He came to the conclusion that he wanted to try without it and he found himself a little job. And in this video, he gave a story of his journey with the conclusion that 
he found this learning opportunity life-changing for him. So I'm going to answer your question with this story. And this has been the feedback we had from many of them. Because we are giving them information without telling them what to do, they have a chance to make an informed decision. Not all of them, I guess, will decide to stop, but some of them, and in the data we have now, the majority of them, and I'm talking about 80% of them, we put in number, they at least challenge their positive view of cannabis that they started with, and they make an attempt to, to change and, and stop it. You, I mean, you, you will see this. 80%. Percent. Wow. Wow. I can't wait. Um, and and um, th that's, that's a really remarkable remarkable change I, I love that i'm gonna i'm gonna speak about that in our mental health uh, institutions um i mean i can i can share with you that the initial data that we have on uh, uh, on the first group that have joined the clinic and 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 the result of how things have changed for them but uh, the thing is that it's not something that happens after one peer group i mean it's something that often happens after they've been with us for a year for a while and they meet what every week Yes, so we meet every Tuesday, four to five, London time, obviously on Zoom. That's awesome. And then you mentioned how a person self-checks. What are the tools for that you give people to, to self-check? So because most, I mean, majority of them are very young, we ask them to think about what is something in their life that is important to them, but that is not going well. I'll give you an example of a young gentleman that... Um, we're working with now so he wanted to get a job and he was under the impression that if he had turned up to a job interview intoxicated on cannabis he would have done much better in his interview because he felt that he would have been more relaxed more chilled out and so he would have been more spontaneous so sadly of course he gets a job interview goes stoned doesn't do very well doesn't get the job so what we suggested to him was okay why don't we do an experiment we set up a sort of uh, uh, interview setting for you on Zoom. So you prepare your presentation and you come to the interview with us, uh, intoxicated on cannabis, and we'll record you. And so he did that. And then we said, a few days later, we do exactly the same thing, but without cannabis and we we'll record you. And what we did was that we played the two recording to him and we asked him to give us a rating to himself. So we asked him to, using some scales that we also use separately, and say, how do you look? Do you think you look professional? You look, you're concentrating. Do you look uh, smart? And then rate is language. Do you sound fluent? Are you clear? And then the content. And he was him saying, well, actually, I can understand now why I didn't get the job, because I look much better and I seem much more competent when I'm not stoned. And so this is a little experiment we got for him. Another guy thinks that when he plays music and you, while he's intoxicated, his music is wonderful because he makes, cannabis makes him more creative. Again, we got him to record a piece of music while stone and one without. And you can imagine you can do this pretty much in any domain of somebody's life. And, uh, uh, and we do that with something important to them rather than important to me or mom and dad, if you like. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. Well, and, and in some way, I mean... You see a picture of yourself. What do you, what do you like better, right? Wow. Exactly. And, and it's nice because it's not me as a clinician telling you how you want to look. Yeah, that, I, I, that is genius. Very genius and simple. I, I, I just love it. 
And Marta, I, I want to ask you about your research. You, you mentioned that people in the UK look to America about the, the good marijuana that we have and, and how it's so wonderful. We actually look to you um, in Europe because you've done the large population-based study and association of cannabis and psychosis, which we sadly haven't done. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yes. So, well, my research in some way comes in the middle of uh, a general trend of exploring the uh, relationship between using cannabis and developing a psychotic disorder. So uh, even before I started doing any research, there'd been very, very large uh, longitudinal studies, so studies where a uh, big sample from the general population were followed up over time, up to when you expect people to uh, to develop a psychotic disorder, sort of early 20s. And then what in this study they did was they looked at the one that had developed a psychotic disorder, and then they checked how many of them in the past had been using cannabis. And so they done very large studies in, uh, in, uh, in Denmark, in the Netherlands. Uh, also, there is a very, very famous studies coming from, uh, from New Zealand. There've been also studies uh, from UK that have all suggested that if you use cannabis, and in particular, if you start using when you are an adolescent, you are significantly more likely up to doubling your risk of developing a psychotic disorder when you are in your early 20s. But then they started doing more what I am familiar with, case control studies. And what we mean with that is that you uh, select um, a sample of uh, young people like we have done who develop a psychotic disorder for the first time. And then you invite to take part in research also to a group of uh, um, people with the same characteristic from the general population, uh, who we will call healthy volunteer. And then you ask questions to these two groups. And we found out that the one who had ended with a psychotic disorder were much more likely to report having using cannabis. And perhaps my contribution to, to research, which I don't think it was a very clever one, it was actually a common sense one, was to show that if you do use cannabis every day, and in particular, if you use cannabis of a type where you have lots of THC, you know, we know uh, the main psychoactive component of cannabis, your risk actually to develop a psychotic disorder can go up to five times or above. And the reason we wanted to look at this was because if you think about, for instance, uh, alcohol and uh, uh, liver problems that people develop when they drink a lot, and uh, we are not in a room, but you know, if I uh, could uh, ask all the people that are going to listen to our chat, have you ever drunk alcohol and asked them to put their hand up? I would suspect that most people would have put a hand up because even if you have tried once in your life, you would be a yes in my question. And most of the study that have been done about cannabis and psychosis have been relying on asking people, have you ever used cannabis? Yes or no. So what I wanted to do was to see, like you do when you ask about alcohol and liver disease, is there something about how much people use the type of cannabis they use, like for alcohol? Is there um, something about the number of units and the type of alcohol that people use that really has an impact on risk? And so this was something that got me a bit closer to asking people more details about their cannabis consumption and have a better estimate or what it is the pattern of cannabis use that drives the most risk. You know, that's what you're saying is so 
important. And uh, I, what I found interesting is what you considered high potency THC uh, is what, what level was that in 10%. Europe? percent. She's pathetic. <laughs> we don't even have that. <laughs> we don't even have 10% THC. But, you know, I love your alcohol analogy because the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Addiction, NIAAA, created dietary standards for alcohol. Right. So if you are using more than seven drinks uh, a week or three at a time as a woman or um, four at a time and 14 um, a week as a man, you're considered an at risk drinker. You may not be an alcoholic, but you are at risk drinker. And we can use those dietary guidelines, um, you know, in, in explaining, um, you know, what's use and, and it changes if you're if you already have if you're older if you have medical conditions you're taking medications then then that that number changes and i could see where um someone needs to develop um these kind of dietary guidelines uh, that you know if you have psychosis then you know you probably shouldn't use any um but to give some type of gauge and, and nida um national institute of drug abuse created a, a standard dose, which is a move in the right direction. So one cigarette is a, a standard, you know, tobacco. Um, one beer is a standard um, dose for alcohol. And the one standard dose for for THC is five um, milligrams. Milligrams, yeah. And so, yeah, and I'm wondering, where are we even in trying to create those type of guidelines? Well, I think we are still so far behind compared to uh, tobacco and, and alcohol. But I think the five milligrams um, unit, if you like, we want to call it that way for cannabis, at least is a starting point. The problem is that what we don't have is the amount of data that we have for alcohol, just because we're starting just now uh, to say um, five milligram, you know, once you exceed um you know if we think that five milligrams is a unit once you exceed uh this number of uh, uh of unit a day so five milligrams by five you have this level of risk and if you are a woman you have to stay at five milligrams by two per day uh, or if you are a certain age group so i think what we do know is that perhaps five milligrams is a good unit but we still don't know how this translates in uh, daily consumption and when this daily consumption goes over a threshold of risk and if there is a difference by gender um, and also certainly we don't know we know that younger people would be a higher risk we still don't know much about older people who use cannabis we think that uh, you know if you I mean we assume that if you are in your 70s and you use lots of cannabis you're going to be absolutely fine because the risk of psychosis at that age is in generally quite low, but there might be other health risks that you come uh, uh, come to harm to when when you smoke in your in your seventies, and there's very little research uh, in that age group. A little research, but a lot of experience. I'm going to share that with your group actually, because I see a lot of that. Because uh, what happens when you're older, you're on a lot of medications, and your medications interact with cannabis. So I've seen people who have internal bleeding. They're in the hospital three times for bleeding because they're they're on a blood thinner and they're using cannabis and and that makes them more at risk for spontaneous bleeding, right? And I've seen people who, um, you know, their grandchildren with all 
you know, good intentions, give grandpa, you know, a, a little gummy bear or, or a brownie. And, and because he says, oh, I can't sleep. I don't feel good. I have pain. And they, good intentions say, hey, try this, grandpa. And then grandpa doesn't wake up. <laughs> Because, again, grandpa has liver disease, he has taking other medications, there are drug interactions. And while um, somebody who is healthy with a healthy liver, you know, would have a transient experience, you know, grandpa's symptoms will last three days. Um, so lo actually lots of examples. I, I can't wait to share with you. I mean, that's so interesting for me because the population you are discussing is also the one that now is targeted by a, a medical marijuana, because you, you can imagine that these are uh, the people who are likely to use it for pain. They are likely to use it for, uh, uh, you know, sleep problem, much more than perhaps 15 year old that clearly they use it for recreational reason. And, you know, we are also in UK in the world of uh, legal uh, medicinal cannabis, but there is no guideline. In fact, I have to say British physician don't really prescribe it because they don't know what they're doing and they're quite scared of it. Uh, but I do know of uh, people in the older age group who are using it for the reason we, we said, with no guidance and no knowing what to look for. Yeah, they don't know. I had a guy, um, just my last shift, he, he you know, reasonable, well-educated, you know, in his 60s, and he had, you know, weird symptoms, you know, almost like a stroke. And we've actually had several patients who we'd call the whole stroke code on from the emergency department, which wasn't a stroke. It was just a cannabis-related um, issue. But, but he just felt kind of dizzy and weak and not himself. And I just had him take out his own cell phones, kind of like your idea of videotaping people. I had him take out his own cell phone. I had him to go to drugs.com. I showed him how to do drug interaction checker. And I I had him put in cannabis and I had him put in his blood pressure medicines and then read what it says. And it, it, he read all his own symptoms. And it was like, wow, I, I guess that is what's happening to me. And it, yeah, so it was, it, it was, cause I just, like you said, he figured it out for himself. I just yeah. gave him the tool. Yeah. And, and do you think Ronnie in America, um, general practitioner would no. know? So yeah, no. they don't know this. Yeah, they don't the know this. Here. And, 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 I'm old enough to know that with the opioid epidemics, when and it's, I don't think this hit Europe as much as it hit America, where our, our medical profession was handing out opiates like candy, and I was one of them, um, because that's what, you know, when I was young in my profession, that's what I was told. You know, people shouldn't have pain on a scale of one to 10. How come you didn't do more for their pain? And so I, I did what I was educated to do, and it, it was a mistake. And I learned that early. And I learned it early because I met parents whose children were victims and they were angry at the medical profession. But when I first came to teach this to the medical profession, people said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not compassionate. You don't care. But I knew that I was right because I was meeting the other side. Right. And I see the exact same thing happen now. I see the same parents, instead of their parents, you know, their kids on opiates having terrible consequences, their kids are in cannabis and, and they're in trauma and distress. And the medical community is like, what are you talking about? It's just marijuana. It's not a big deal. And it's like, no, it's a very big deal. And and I think we're, we're, uh, we're always behind. And, and, and doctors are not the smartest in the world. Sometimes we need to learn from our, you know, these Patients, parents. These, yeah. Right, right. And, and I learned from these parents. These families are the ones who are, who are teaching me who, 
and I realize that I'm on the right side of history because of them. And I'm, and this is the second time I've lived through this, right? I've lived through it from opiates and it's the same issue now with, with cannabis. And it's interesting you say that because probably Robin mentioned it, but um, if you ask Robin, why did he get interested in, uh, in cannabis, in the link between cannabis use and psychosis, he will tell you that it was because families coming to him and say, well, Professor Murray, my son has developed uh, this uh, condition. And I think maybe that was because of cannabis because they started using any stuff there. And he would say to you that at the beginning, he said, no, 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 can't be cannabis because cannabis is absolutely fine. But then he, 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 this story started reoccurring and it was because of families that he realizes that it was something worthwhile investigating. So- right. totally And I definitely see that, I see that, that, but I also see now that in the elderly, I hear, my colleagues getting MRIs and CAT scans and weird studies on, on older people who are not right. You know, they, something's, they feel like something's not right in their brain. And, and I'm like, it's, it's cannabis. <laughs> we're doing, we're spending millions of dollars for something that, you know, that, that, that we have the answer that, for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me ask you, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is there a difference between smoked and edible products and and uh, and the association with psychosis and schizophrenia so in fact what is interesting that most of the data we have on that come from from your side of the atlantic this time rather than ours because in uh, in europe cannabis is still predominantly consumed by smoking uh, but what we do know is that um, when you eat a product with cannabis it can be the famous gummy or a cookie or a cake the way it is absorbed produces an effect which is much more delayed. So you don't actually eat a gummy and you feel the high immediately, like when you actually smoke. And so what happens is that people are much more likely to overdose. And we have lots of reports from colleagues like yours, running it, you, now in UK, are beginning to see this, of young people uh, baking a cake with cannabis. They have a slice, they don't feel anything. And then they bake a second, they have a second slice, and then they have a third slice. And by the time, you know, you get the THC to the brain, they end in an accident and emergency with very disturbed behavior and also disturbed, you know, heart rhythm and physical symptoms, which they would not normally get if they had smoked um, a joint. And so I guess uh, you get much you get much more um, in terms of overdoses when you consume edibles that when when you smoke. But this is something that we are only beginning to see now because uh, um, edibles for our for us are a novelty. Yeah. Um, so they're probably I imagine if it's the same chemical entering entering the brain, the, uh, the effect and the risk is the same. Yes. even though the pharmacokinetics of it is different. Yeah, and, um, and I think the, the risk of having a greater impact is also to do with the fact that people can't control, titrate the effect. If you like, you know, uh, even young users will be able to tell when they're beginning to get high. They, they, they might don't see the bad side of it, but they know the recreational side of it. With the edibles, they're seeking for it. It doesn't come, and they're much more likely to to overdose and so you do get the psychosis in the same way as when you smoke it but in a much magnified way because you ended consuming much more in a shorter period of time and i think this is where the the unit dose the five nanograms take place because if you're smoking 
you know, it takes a while to get through that joint and or the 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 bowl. And I don't know for sure, but I imagine it's 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 a quantitative answer. Like it depends how many total milligrams a day you're getting, whether you're smoking it or whether you're eating eating it. And if you're eating it, you're probably getting more milligrams at a time than smoking it. Yes, definitely. And uh, and and I guess also one of the things we uh, we do know is that compared to other, including alcohol, other substances, the clearance from the body of THC is very slow. And uh, we do store lots of the THC that is uh, consumed in our fat tissue. And then it, get, it continues to be released and people can have traces of THC up to a month after they had stopped. And evidence suggests that when you consume it by edibles, um, you tend to to store more in the fat tissue. So you get a sort of longer storage of, of THC in your in, in your body. But again, the literature from uh, from Europe is still uh, still needs to so become a bit more sort of sophisticated uh, on this topic because we don't have much of in terms of edibles. Right. And you mentioned that that cannabis lives in the fat and another fat organ is your brain. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, you talk about um, who are the cannabis users who are at risk. Certainly not everybody who smokes gets heart disease. Not everybody who uses marijuana gets psychosis. But who, who are the people at risk? Well, what we do, th this is actually what I spend currently most of my time trying to find an answer for. Because we do know in general that the one they use daily and the one they use high potency are five times more likely. So we do know that there is something in the pattern of use that drives the risk. But we also know that not all the daily use, users of high potency cannabis develop psychosis. So who are these people? So genetics must be playing a role, but we don't know yet what do we mean with it. So we don't know which genes are involved, how many of them are involved. We don't know if it is mostly driven by the way we clear out THC. So if you like by metabolism uh, or if it is to do by genes that regulate the way our brain works. But also we now know that having had other risk factors for psychosis. So one of my students is looking at the relationship between trauma and cannabis use. And she finds that again, you know, if you have trauma, and then you use cannabis, your probability of becoming psychosis is much greater. So what we don't know yet, like we do know for going back to heart disease, we don't have yet something that clinician can, uh, can run through and say, okay, you're smoking cannabis and also you have this and you have that and you have this, this is your risk of developing psychosis. We're not yet as sophisticated at that, but we certainly do know that Having a family history of psychosis will increase your risk. Having had another risk factor for psychosis will increase your risk. Using every day with lots of THC would increase your risk. What I hope to be able to understand better with, with our genetic work is to see if there are specific group of genes that have a specific role so that you might even be able to screen. For instance, if there are people we know that there are some branches of medicine like some particular type of epilepsy where perhaps there is a place for using specific doses of type of cannabis medication. And CBD, so if we get, yeah. and CBD and, and for some of these epilepsy, you still have a small amount of THC. 
So even when you think about giving THC as a potential medicine, to be able to say, okay, for this person, THC might be beneficial, but we need to screen them to make sure it is safe. I think we're quite far from, uh, from, from there yet, but nobody has looked at the genes that are involved in uh, the metabolism of THC, going back to, to our point. And we do know, for instance, for alcohol, that one that there is a clear genes that makes a difference between somebody having fun with alcohol or being very sick on alcohol. And I have that gene. And I know that because if I drink, I'll get very sick, certainly don't get very cheery. And, and I'm, nobody has looked if there is an equivalent of the alcohol dehydrogenase for THC. And this is something that we, we've been looking at. So the answer is that if you invite me again in three years time, I might have a more precise uh, answer to your question. All right, it's a date. Uh, if I have this show and we still have that, that'd be uh, it'll be amazing. I have to tell you, I've for for many years now, I uh, I have a presentation, and and one of the things I I show is that there is a genetic component to cannabis and schizophrenia, and I I have a chart, and I was just recently looking at this little graph that I have, and do you know whose name was on that graph? Robin. No, it says DeForti. <laughs> And I'm like, oh I can't believe it. I show this on hundreds of presentation and it's a graph with your name on it. And it shows that um, for people who use heavy cannabis use, they have this AKT1, and it's the CC gene. And so I kind of just show it, but I don't really understand it. So now I get to to ask the author. How well, the, the good news <laughs> about it, you don't need to worry about understanding it because... One of the reasons I didn't mention is because it has not been replicated enough to consider it valid. I think what we could take away from that study is that, that there are probably genes and they're more likely. So that gene, the AKT1 gene, is a gene that has something to do with the dopamine in our brain. So it's to do with how much of the dopamine signal we are able to effectively produce in our brain. And we do know that dopamine is the neurotransmitter that has to do with pleasure, has to do with moving effectively, but also has to do with psychosis when we have too much of it. So we thought that perhaps one good candidate gene to see uh, what role genetic predisposition has in understanding the people most at risk could have been a gene like AKT1 that depending which variant you have, so if you have the C or the T, makes you to have more dopamine when you use cannabis. And so if you have a type of gene that makes your dopamine system to be overcharged when you use cannabis, you can think that this is a gene that makes you more susceptible. So we did find a very nice story with AKT1. So we found that people who had uh, one copy, but in particular two copy of the C variant of this gene, were much more likely to develop a psychotic disorder when they use cannabis compared to the one that had the other variant of the gene. But unfortunately, this has not been, so the two studies have shown that, but other studies have not shown this. So we cannot go around saying to people, look for your AKT1 gene and you know if you're safe. But what probably this tells you is that it's a signal that is something about genes that are involved in dopamine that probably will be able to tell us who is susceptible. So what we're doing now is rather than looking at one gene, we're looking at hundreds of genes that are involved in defining how much dopamine and how, how um, good are we at producing dopamine in our brain that might play a role in susceptibility. So you might get another slide 
where rather than one gene, there are hundreds of genes to do with dopamine, um, hopefully at some point. Yeah, it's it's a dramatic slide because it shows, you know, never used cannabis, a little cannabis, and everyday cannabis, and it shows like this this AKT. Seven times increase, yeah, yes. Right? Yeah. So it was a it's a dramatic association. Can no, it was a very nice story, but sadly I can't say I, I, we can put our salary on it because uh, the science has not supported it enough. And how do you how do you do that if somebody wants? Okay, I have a cannabis use disorder and psychosis. Is this a blood test? Is this something people can check? No, and. I guess the only thing I can say, and I don't know if you discussed this with Robin, what we do know now is that, for instance, in relation to, forget about cannabis for a moment, if we think about schizophrenia and psychotic disorder, we know that genetic plays a big role, and but we have lots of uh, genes of small effects, and we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of them that represent my risk, your risk, and the risk of other people. So now we know that these little genes of small effect can be summarized into a general score. So we can calculate uh, the summary score for my schizophrenia genes, the one for your schizophrenia genes, just doing a blood test. So I might get 10, you might get two, somebody else get 10 in terms of how many genes we have. So what you could do potentially is that, of course, more of the schizophrenia genes you have, more likely you are to develop psychosis if you smoke cannabis. So if you really want to do something helpful, you can send to one of these companies, 23andMe or whatever you have in the States, and ask them to calculate your polygenic risk score for schizophrenia. And then, you know, if it's middle to high, I would definitely stay away from cannabis. But if you have a low schizophrenia polygenic risk score, doesn't mean that you are entirely safe. So that's why I don't recommend people doing it. But there, there is such a blood test. You can go to a lab and ask for it because now, like all Americans are going, well, I want to know. Do I have that schizophrenia gene? Is there? Well, well, you I'm can... not aware. I'm not aware of a lab where I can. So, get so that. you can. So, uh, I bought for Robin for Christmas. You'd be pleased. It wasn't the only Christmas present, but one of his Christmas present now, almost five years ago, it was this kit that you can buy online. That is this this company, as I say, called Twenty Three and Me, because Twenty Three the number of chromosome. And they send you this box and then we're all familiar now with swabs because of COVID. So you just swab inside of your mouth and you put your swab into a little tube and you send it off. And they use the DNA in this tube to do your entire genome, uh, analyze your entire genome. And then uh, um, they produce lots of different uh, results. And you can ask to, to calculate for you your polygenic risk score for schizophrenia. So to you can ask them to, to, to check how many schizophrenia genes you have. You can ask them to tell you how many genes you have for breast cancer risk, for Parkinson's, for dementia, lots of things. But you can also do it for, uh, uh, for schizophrenia. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, this has been a very lovely conversation very much enjoyed it and very informative do you have any like final advice for alexis and, and maybe to america well my advice is is very difficult to for somebody as old as me and uh, or for a mom or a dad to get anywhere but just saying to a son or, or a young person cannabis is not good for you i think you should try and reduce your stop i think it's important to give them a chance 
to work that out. And doesn't matter if they're not well, we shouldn't underestimate the ability of learning and thinking, even of somebody who has psychotic symptoms. And so if you can get your loved ones, your young one, to access information, to listen to talks in their own time with the peers, this will reach them much more than somebody as old as me telling them what to do. So this is something I've learned with the experience of the cannabis clinic. And so, for instance, Ronit, you're doing wonderful with this interview. And often when we do interview like this, they are for parents, but parents knows already what to worry about. So it would be also good to get interviews like this they can be had at school by children or by young people where we can engage with school or even have an interview like this where you might have a young person involved that can get his peers engaged in, in, in listening and give out a message that smoking cannabis is not cool. You don't look good when you're stoned. You smell very bad. There's nothing cool about using cannabis. And then maybe you get more young people to listen than just uh talking about risk of mental illness because mental illness to them is something very abstract yeah that's very interesting and i have to to ask you if you have this um uh, cancel culture in in europe where young people may be afraid of coming up and say that because they would just be talked down to for 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 saying something unpopular like that well we we have two two sort of uh parallel uh, school of thoughts so or if you, if you like uh, uh, um, approaches of young people so there would be young people who would be very very scared of saying well I'm going to go against what most of my peers will say which is cannabis is fun cannabis is fun and is and is safe but there are some other young people and I know a couple of them were quite brave and said well actually it might be fun but again it's not cool because there are lots of things that are important for somebody as young as me that when I use cannabis, I can't do. And so it can be as good as people say. And so all we need is to find even one or two of these, you know, in, in today terminology, you will call them influencer. So we need to find a nice, charming, young influencer that is prepared to embrace this message with us. And I think we'll be out the way there. You know what, if you have someone that from your group or whatever that you recommend, I will have them on the show. Yes, of course. Okay. We can definitely discuss that. Yeah. I want to say thank you to Alexis. I very much appreciate you reaching out and the difficulties of a very tragic diagnosis as well as navigating. We're in a first world health system, but sometimes it can behave like a third world manner. It's not very easy. It's unfair. And I, I appreciate um, the struggles that you're having and, and, and we'll, we'll do what I can to help you. And uh, I thank you, Dr. Marta DeForti. The world is looking to you and your research as we advocate for health policies that follow science rather than business. And I thank you for inviting me to meet your cannabis patient group. I can't wait and look uh, forward to learning um, from them as well. Thank you for having me and great pleasure to meet you and to, uh, to hear from Alexis as well. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.